So we are going to be starting in chapter 23 of the Gospel of Luke this morning. So if you will, get the text of Luke chapter 23 in front of you this morning. Uh, Here's where we are right now. Jesus has been through these two unofficial pre-trials. The first with uh, Annas, uh, who was the previous high priest. They took him there and asked a bunch of questions. And then the second was Caiaphas, uh, who was the current high priest. And after that, they... uh, um, they take him to his first official trial before the Sanhedrin. If you remember, that's the highest Jewish court that there is. It's made up of 71 Jewish elders, or 70 Jewish elders and the high priest. Um, and, and so having wrongly and unjustly convicted Jesus on, on the specific charges of blasphemy, the, these Jewish leaders now submit themselves to Jesus and to the authority of the Roman government to be tried in the hopes that, that Rome will come in and sentence him to death and that's where we're picking up t- today. So if you will, I-, I want you to follow along. And uh, before we do, I've actually hit that point in my life. This is the day where my perfect vision had become so bad that you, know, you probably all saw your parents do this if you're older, or you will soon, where they start holding out the receipt because they can't see real good. And, and reading the scripture, unless my Bible can get bigger, I have to like, start using these to be able to read well. So anyway, I'm, I'm wearing glasses for the first time in my life in a public setting, I think. I, I'm going to take them right back off after reading the scripture. <clears throat> I'm not that comfortable yet. Uh, so Luke 23, verse 1. When the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, then, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at this time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, and he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see him, see some sign done by him. And so he questioned him at some length, but he made no, no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with, with, with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before, before this, they had been at enmity with each other. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we seek to understand your word this morning, we, we ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you, you will enlighten our minds to believe your word and, and that our understanding of who Jesus is would be formed by your word. And, and may we go from here today changed because of your word, because of your work within us through the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So like I, I said, the, the Sanhedrin had declared that Jesus was, had committed the, the crime of blasphemy and decided he deserves to be put to death for this blasphemy, except for they do run into one problem. The, the, the Jewish court does not actually have the authority under Roman law to go about handing out capital punishment, right? This is disappointing to them because they can't do what they want to do in this moment. And so um, so we're, we're told in verse 1 there that the whole company of them, meaning, meaning all 71, or most of them at least, right, of the Sanhedrin, they bring Jesus to Pilate. Um, this is effectively this, this mob who delivers him. 
People still use this tactic today, trying to get whatever they want by, by, by gathering together large crowds, right? On whatever side of an issue that might be. That's, that, that's why people protest really about everything today, right? Because the idea is if we can gather enough people who are angry about this, raging about this, then the leaders will have to do something. And, and so while the, the whole council wasn't necessary to come and show up at this in order to make these accusations, they all do actually go to this, right, to Jesus' trial. And, and what's really kind of shocking when you think about this entire 71-person group going to this is this. Don't, don't forget that it's made up of these two groups of Jews primarily, right, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You remember these two people, these two groups? These guys detest each other. These guys are, you know, like Republicans and Democrats teaming up to, to work together. This is like the, the Hatfields and the McCalls are like Apple users and Android users, like trying to get along with each other. These are people that do not get along. And, and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right, they usually hate each other, and yet here they are united in, in their hatred of, of Jesus. Right? Hatred of him. They, they want... Pilate to kill Jesus. That's their goal together. We can work together on this. And now y'all know this, this name, Pilate. You're familiar with it. We say it often. We recited it this, uh, this morning, actually, right? In the Apostles' Creed. So speaking of Jesus, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, right? Pilate's name, you, you, you don't hear around town. It's not one we commonly use. It's gone down in history with names like uh, Judas and Adolf and Voldemort. Like names you do not name your child after, no matter what. That's why none of you... None of you probably have ever met any little boy named Pontius in your entire life. It's, it's just one of those, those names. So anyway, Pilate is the governor of the region of Judea. That's his, his authority, his, his place of power. And, and he holds this, tower, uh, this power for about 10 years, uh, AD 26 to AD 36. Um, it's not an elected position. Don't think of it in terms, it's a political thing, but not in terms of like we think of it. It's assigned uh, by the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. Uh, and Pilate has this, this general reputation of being harsh and, and cruel. It's, it's easy to see even from this interaction and in this gospel and the others that, that he has this desire to just keep the public peace. He's not really interested in, in true justice. He eventually loses this position, his, his position here, uh, because there's this Samaritan revolt that happens, and he like, goes against it very violently, and, and, and that's how he loses his position. Anyway, it's interesting. For, for many hundreds of years, actually, uh, skeptics of Christianity would say, you know what, Pontius Pilate doesn't even exist. He's not a real person. There's, there's no archaeological evidence that he ever existed. And, and then, not surprising to you probably, in, in 1961... Uh, some uh, archaeologists began to discover uh, so many things that pointed to Pilate and, and, and at his existence, that he was real. And, and at this point, even the most, most ardent, you know, most passionate skeptics don't question the existence of Pilate today. But, right, if you were hearing this 100 years ago, you might have someone still, still doing that. Uh, anyway, the Sanhedrin has, has to bring charges against Jesus. <clears throat> and you might notice, it's important right off the bat, the charges they don't say, they don't say, well... We found this guy, Jesus, guilty of blasphemy because he says he's, he's the son of God and, and so we're ready, we want to go forward with that so we can put him to death. And, and they don't do that, right? They, they couldn't bring that charge because the Romans do not care about blasphemy laws. It, it's like if you accuse someone today in the United States 
uh, of blasphemy, right? If you want to want to do that, he he. We actually had blasphemy laws in the United States at one point, but but the last person that actually ever convicted of it was a, a guy in Arkansas in 1928, an atheist guy. Uh, anyway, right? If today, if you decided, you know what, I, I'm going to try to have Stucky arrested for for blasphemy, and you call him up, well, what's he doing? He is committing blasphemy here. Our government wouldn't care. They'd be like, well, we don't arrest people for that. Um, you, you see, the, the laws are, are tied to lands, they're tied to nations and states, uh, always this way, right? Uh, in, in Scotland, there is this, this law, it is illegal to ride a cow while drunk in Scotland. Real law. Here in Kansas, you could be arrested for riding a horse while drunk, uh, while intoxicated, uh, but you can legally ride a cow in Kansas uh, while drunk without fear of, of getting a DUI. I don't recommend it, but I, I'm just pointing out there's different laws based on the land you're actually in. And, and so in John's gospel, we, we learn that Pilate first tells the Jews, uh, right, to, to try to, you know, try him according to your law. And the Jews, you know, and rather than saying, well, we already did, they're, they're really like, we, we can't do it according to our law, right? Because, uh, well, in John 18.31, the Jews say this, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We already found him guilty. We can't do what we want to do. So uh, we really want to kill this man, so that's why we need you to try him and find him guilty. So knowing the Romans don't care about the Jews' guilty verdict of blasphemy, they don't even mention it. It's not even a side thing. Well, blasphemy, but also this. It's not even mentioned. Instead, they absolutely lie. They make up charges that they think Rome will care about. They, they list three accusations, and all of them are intended to present Jesus as this, as this dangerous anti-government revolutionary that you need to be worried about. You, you see their first charge, verse 2, look at it. We found this man misleading our nation. With this, they want Pilate to believe that, that Jesus is pulling people away from their loyalty to Rome. That's what he's doing. The, the irony is that we, we've seen all throughout the Gospels, right, that these Jews, particularly the Pharisees, they hated the Roman government. They, they hate them. And yet, did you notice that they don't mention, or, you know, they don't, they don't say Jesus is misleading your nation or, or, or he's misleading the nation. They come out and, and they really associate themselves. We have found Jesus misleading our nation, right? In, in, the, right? in, in other words, we are, we're with you. This is our nation. We love it. But this guy, Jesus, he hates the nation. He wants to destroy the nation. This is not a good guy. And, and the Jews are being absolutely dishonest here. While Jesus is all about the kingdom of God, all about the kingdom of God, he never makes any effort to overthrow the Roman government. That's not what he came for, none. Their second charge is that Jesus is forbidding us to, to give tribute to Caesar. And if you've been with us through, this, through the Luke series, or Luke, yeah, preaching through Luke, you know that this is an absolute flat-out lie. If you remember back in Luke 20, uh, the Jewish leaders publicly asked Jesus this question. They say, hey, is it lawful for us to give to give?" tribute to Caesar or not. They're trying to set him up thinking he's going to say not, and then they have the charges they want, right? So they ask that question. And in case you're wanting tribute tax, uh, this was a tax that Roman required for the privilege, right, uh, of the Jews living under and being protected by the Roman government. Uh, they didn't have an option in this, but it was, it was, it was like that, what, MasterCard gives you the convenience charge, and they're like, you can't get out of that. Uh, anyway, this is when Jesus could have said at this moment, he could have said, you know what, Rome has overstepped their jurisdiction and, jurisdiction, and you should not pay that tribute tax. In fact, that's what they thought he was going to say, hoped he was going to say. Instead, listen to what our Lord, Luke 20, verse 24 says. He says, show me a denarius, that's the money, Who, whose likeness inscription does this have on it? 
And the crowd responds to him, Caesar's, that's who. And and Jesus says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, yes, pay the tribute tax. And and so this accusation is 100% contrary to what Jesus actually taught. That's the kind of thing they're doing. They are so willing to lie to get what they want in this moment. And the third charge is this. Uh, You can see in verse 2 that Jesus says that he himself is Christ a king, right? They define it for him. Christ, a king. In other words, the Jews are saying, this guy, Jesus, he is a real threat to Rome. He is a threat to your boss, King Caesar, right? Caesar, who is a king, uh, because he is claiming kingship himself. If you don't kill him, he could commit treason and seek to overthrow the government, and that's going to be on you. And so then Pilate doesn't even address the first two charges. He's like, no. Um, and, and, and like the Sanhedrin before him, he, I don't know, does this stuff actually happen in trials, I wonder? Because he gets right to the point with this relevant question, are you the king of the Jews, right? We can make this a very short trial if you'll just answer that question. And, and here in Luke, we, we see the shorter version of this exchange with, with Jesus saying, you, you have said so. You see, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer, it really is, uh, simply because what, what Pilate means by the word king, it's someone who rules over a city-state, a temporal government, and what Jesus and the scriptures mean by king is far greater, far superior, far wider reaching than any political leader. In John 18, 36, we hear Jesus' full answer. Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of the world. Jesus is king of the Jews. He really, really is. Way back early in, in, Luke, or sorry, in Matthew, 22, Matthew 2, verse 2, right? At the birth of Jesus and the wise men are looking for him. You might remember what they say they're looking for. They say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? That's who we've come seeking. Yes, in fact, Jesus is the king of the Jews, but not, not in any sense that really concerns Pilate. Rome here. Jesus has no army. You remember in the garden when when the Jews came to arrest him? Jesus didn't tell the other ten disciples there, get your swords out. Let's fight these guys. You know, take up your swords. He told Peter, you know, the only one who actually has pulled out a sword at this point, he tells him, put your sword away. Pilate concludes rather quickly that Jesus is not intending to to overthrow the Roman government. Pilate declares, you know, just that when, when when he says there in verse four, four, right? This is his conclusion. I find, I find no guilt in this man. That's the verdict, not, not guilty. And, and this creates this panic within the chief priests and the scribes because they can see what they want done is starting to slip, slip away, right? The ESV says they're urgent, right? That Greek term urgent here means to be, to be more strongly pushing, more violently, more, more pushy in general, right? That, that's what they're doing with these accusations. Let's just go more, more rage after them. And so they, they throw out more accusations saying, you know what? Jesus stirs up people all over the place. But Jesus never stirred up a rebellion against Rome. He was stirring up people to salvation, people to repentance, and in these new accusations, Pilate hears, there, there's something interesting that catches his mind in there. You can probably see it already, right? But, but just in passing, they say, you know what? He's been teaching from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, to this place here, right? And, and that word that interests them there is that word Galilee. 
<clears throat> and, and, and it's interesting that everything changes here because honestly, he's just been declared not guilty, which the normal way that the, the law is going to work is, is he is set free. The, the, the trial is over. You are not guilty. Go free. And, and yet that one word actually makes everything hang on here because it just throws a wrench into this legal system. Here's why. Roman trials were usually held wherever the crime was committed, right? You murder someone in Florida, you're going to go and, and, and do your trial in Florida. Uh, however, here, according to their law, uh, the trial could also be held in the region that the accused person is from. So, right, same analogy. You murder someone in Florida, but you're from California, you could go back to California for it. Or the California leaders, wherever they are, could actually do it. And, and so Pilate is wondering this, right? Pilate's wondering... Huh. So, so Jesus is from Galilee, and, he, and he's wondering because it, it turns out Passover is going on. People from all over the nation have come to Jerusalem at this point, and one of the people there is a guy named Herod the Tetrarch, and, and, and Herod the Tetrarch is the ruler over Galilee. He's in Jerusalem. He can actually do this trial. In, in other words, he's, you know, here's what Pilate, you, you kind of, and, and again, there's a little conjecture here, but you get the sense that, <clears throat> that all these angry yelling, raging Jews are so mad at him, and he doesn't like the people being mad at him, and, and, and so you're thinking, you know what, I'm just going to push this off on Herod. Right, rather than me make this, and I can see they're not liking my, my conclusion here, and uh, so I'm just going to push it off on Herod, and they can get mad at Herod, or whatever that might look like. And, and it's, you know, it's kind of that, uh, that not-so-stellar parenting move, where, where kids ask, hey, can we play Nintendo? And mom says, no, actually, go ask dad, right? Let, let him be the bad guy. Uh, or vice versa, whatever. I mean, and so they're asking this question, you know, can we kill Jesus? No. Actually, go ask Herod, maybe, right? And, and so Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod, who we're going to learn later, they're, they're not get along, they're not big fans of each other. And, and so Herod the Tetrarch, this, uh, Tetrarch, he rules over the region of Galilee. This is the son of Herod who had baby boys murdered at the birth of Jesus, right? He, he's the same Herod who murdered John the Baptist, and and, and that was this... This reward for uh, a young woman's apparently amazing dancing at his birthday party, right? Anything you want up to half my kingdom. I want John the Baptist's head on a, a platter and Herod delivers it. Um, this is the same Herod who, who later actually murders the apostle James in Acts, in Acts uh, chapter 12. And, and, and you, do, you know, right, Herod, he's not a good guy. Now sometimes we do this way too one-dimensional, right? Like he's just evil throughout, throughout. Uh, what you might not realize is Herod actually has some, some interest in spiritual things at times, right? Uh, while he didn't appreciate John the Baptist calling out his adulterous relationship with his sister-in-law, Herod did enjoy listening to John the Baptist preach while John was in, in prison. This is one of those things you probably, you know, kind of read right over and don't even realize. But Mark 6.20, we read this. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly, right? This is John's preaching while in in prison under, under Herod. Uh, so anyway, so Herod is, is actually excited about this opportunity. You know what, I get to, I get to see Jesus. This is great. Uh, it's not because he thinks, you know what, I've been really wanting to hear the gospel. I just want to really wrestle with the things Jesus has to say. Uh, instead, Herod views an, an audience with Jesus in this way. He thinks this is going to be great entertainment, right? It's like if you heard... Uh, you know what, the music Hamilton's in town. You might think, oh man, I've never heard that musical, but I've heard so much about it, I can't wait to see it. It's, it's kind of that kind of thing, only the show that Herod wants to see in this moment is to see Jesus performing. Wants to see him do the miracles. 
You hear these stories. This, this guy multiplied food to feed 5,000, right? He turned water into wine. He, he's healed paralyzed people and, and, and cast out demons from possessed people and so on. And, and, and so these are the things he wants to see. And, and then he begins to question Jesus for a while. And, and Jesus isn't engaging with Herod. He's not doing any of the stuff he wants to do. No miracles, nothing. Which, which proves to be incredibly frustrating to Herod because he wants to see these things. He wants to be entertained and Jesus won't even acknowledge him. And in a lot of ways, he's, he's viewed Jesus like some new toy, some new gadget that does not work in the way he wants him to. And, and the chief priests and the scribes are, are there as well and they just vehemently accuse Jesus. You see, the, the silence of our Lord here, it, it actually fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah 53, 7, which, which says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus knows this is not a just trial. It's not truth the Jews and Pilate and Herod or any of them are after. You know, we, we should probably learn here to, to not be so quick to defend ourselves when we are accused falsely, unjustly. For, for like Jesus, we, we can patiently trust our Father in heaven to defend us. When, when Peter in his first letter writes about our Lord, he, he says this, 1 Peter 2.22, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to, to him who judges justly. Herod does find Jesus innocent. Herod does not convict Jesus of any of these accusations. Uh, however, he is angry. However, he is frustrated at Jesus for not responding, not performing any miracles. And, and he, too, treats Jesus with absolute contempt and mockery. We see this over and over through these last hours of our Lord. His soldiers take, presumably, some of Herod's fancy clothing and they dress him up like a king and they send him back to Pilate. Why? Because Herod is a terrible man. He's a, a bully at the truest sense of the word because he thinks it'll be absolutely hilarious. Because here's Pilate receiving the king of the Jews back, only, oh, he's really dressed like the king of the Jews now. And through this, these two Roman leaders who previously dislike each other, find this friendship, find this relationship. It's, it's an unholy alliance between these two. It, it's sad, terribly sad, right? And instead of being reconciled to God through Christ, they are reconciled to each other in their contempt of Jesus. You might wonder, why does, why does Luke even tell us that? Like, who cares that they became friends? Why is that relevant in any way? He does so because this, too, is a fulfillment of prophecy about the Messiah. Psalm 2, 1, and two, 1 verses 1 and 2, which read this. Why did the nations raise and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set, the, set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, right? It's a fulfillment of that. And so these two find themselves united. United in, well, united in their, their mockery of the Savior of the world. United in their absolute contempt and mockery of the only holy one to walk this earth. See, Jesus should be worshipped. He should be adored and honored and, and treated with all in reverence. But, but these men mock him. <clears throat> People still mock Jesus today. You know that. 
People evoke Jesus' name as a curse word. People mock Jesus' followers. They, they mock God's word. They, they speak blasphemy against Jesus. But there's also other ways um, to mock Jesus that are a little more subtle. Ways we might do it. See, we, we mock our Lord when we don't take him serious. And by that, I don't mean that we are serious all the time by no means, right? But, but that we must take Jesus serious. In your words, your, your actions, your, your life, do, do you actually honor Jesus? Or do you make a mockery of him in that relationship? You see, anything less than intended obedience to Jesus is a, is a form of mockery. Do you, do you ever low-key mock Jesus by, by simply never thinking of him? Or by rarely going to him in prayer as if, why does it matter? Ne- neglecting to read and, and learn from and submit to, to his word, God's word. Because in a very real sense, any, anything less than honoring Jesus as Lord is to mock him. <clears throat> so both Pilate and Herod find Jesus innocent of these charges that have been brought for him, right? He gets sent back, not guilty, horribly sent back, but with a not guilty charge. It's important to know this because of the manner in which our Lord died, Right? If the only thing that you know about Jesus is the way that he is put to death, crucified, you might get the impression that he was some kind of terrible criminal. Right? This is capital punishment. Those are the people that were hanging on crosses at this time. It's like if you learn, oh, so-and-so's on death row right now, you don't think, oh, he's probably innocent. You think, oh, he must have done something terrible to get in that position. But Jesus didn't do anything terrible. Not even by their standards. He didn't do anything sinful at all, not, not just in this inf- instance of, of blasphemy and treason, but, but he never sinned ever. And, and while Pilate and, and Herod were both right about who Jesus isn't, right? Jesus isn't this anti-government revolutionary. They're, they're right in, in finding Jesus innocent of those charges, and still they are so wrong about who Jesus really is, or they wouldn't treat him the way that they do, they wouldn't be mocking him. See, they relate to Jesus wrongly. Not that they're wrong about everything regarding Jesus. So today we can, we can be right about one aspect of Jesus, or many aspects of Jesus, and still relate to Jesus wrongly. One way that people do that today is, is, is to have what, what James calls dead faith. Right? That, that's when we are intellectually right about Jesus, but spiritually not right with Jesus. Being right about Jesus is not the same as being right with Jesus. This is when you uh, affirm correct information about Jesus, but you fail to deeply, truly believe it. Like in James 2.14, where he asks, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? A verse later in James 2.19, he points out, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. You understand that? In other words, the, the, the demons have amazing theology. They know about God better than any of us. If you really want, you know, if if they could sit down and just write a systematic theology of what's true about God, they could do a superior job than any of us could do. But they do not love Jesus. They do not trust Jesus. They do not submit to Jesus. They do not acknowledge him as their Lord, as their King. You see, it's possible for you or for me to affirm the right things about Jesus, to know the Apostles' Creed, to, to agree with the inerrancy of Scripture and the Trinity, to understand that salvation is by grace through faith alone. It's possible to affirm those things, know those things, and still not honor Jesus as Lord. 
Which is why that deeper question is always there. Do you, do you believe, truly believe the truth of the gospel? And how do we, how do we assess this? You know, well, you know, for instance, does your sin grieve you? Do you repent of sin in your life? Does it bother you when, when you're not contrite, not, not more broken for your sin? You think something's not right there. You see, if repentance has no place in your life, you should actually question whether you have faith that's truly alive. It's a question of repentance, not sin. Further, what's your, your confidence before God? If, is it your, your good works, your right theology, or is it 100% dependence upon who Jesus is for you? Do you see evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life? Is, is your life showing not perfection of, but, but evidence of the fruit of, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Is, is that what's showing up in your life as a fruit of the Spirit in your life? Listen, if your theology is not moving you to love God more and to love your neighbor more and to hate your sin more, you know, to hate sin in your life more, if it's not driving you to Christ, then your theology is just that. Your theology. Because it certainly is not Jesus' theology. Don't relate to, to God as some theological hobbyist. Don't ever be more interested in being right and being thought intelligent and crushing opponents and, and winning arguments, right? I'm not saying be ignorant of theology. Do study the word. Know it. This is a good thing, right? But, but greater than that is, is this knowing that you are submitting yourself to Jesus as Lord. But let's not be the type of people who our, our Lord speaks of in Matthew 15.8 saying, right? This people honors me with their lips but their hearts is far from me. My, my point is, is this. Knowing who Jesus isn't doesn't mean that we know who Jesus is. Pilate and Herod get some things right about Jesus, particularly that he is absolutely innocent of these accusations that the, the Jews have brought against him. But they do not know who Jesus really is. They don't re- and so they don't relate to Jesus as their Savior. And that is absolutely heartbreaking, right? When you realize this is real things. These are real people with real souls and live real lives, right? And it's heartbreaking because they themselves are going to stand trial before God one day, right? And in this instance, they will not be the judge. They are going to be the ones accused. Rightly accused. Accused of, of sin, of cosmic treason. And, and they will have no one to speak for them because they have rejected Jesus. The only one who can speak for them. On the other hand, knowing Jesus changes the way that we relate to the world around us. You, you who have truly placed your faith in Jesus, you know that, that, that your Savior Jesus has suffered all the way to the cross for you. you. You can be sure that he will speak up in your defense, telling the Father not to give you the verdict that you deserve, to instead give you the verdict that he deserves as the perfect, holy one. In other words, Jesus will redeem all who trust in him for salvation. Jesus does redeem all who trust in him for salvation. So one of the things that comes out of this passage is the simple question, do you trust in Jesus for salvation? Is, is Jesus your Lord? Your King? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for accomplishing redemption for us. Jesus, thank you for enduring suffering and unjust trials. Thank you for fixing your eyes on the cross and laying down your life for our souls. Thank you for all that you do for us and for a kingdom that is not of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.